following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is the word of the Lord. Guys, it's, it's been a, a crazy week. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know if anybody, if we stood here last week, if we could anticipate the uproar, um, the chaos that's ensued, there's been a, a lot of ugliness that's been exposed over the course of the last couple of weeks, the ugliness of racism. Uh, some of us are becoming aware of, of, of the, the brokenness and, and the systemic injustice that's in place in our country. Uh, and then, of course, there's, there's the wickedness of the, the looting and the murders that have happened. And I think it's really easy to look at the news and just be really overwhelmed. Um, and, and kind of driven into despair. Um, and, and like, let's, I don't want to just scoot past the reality that there's a lot that needs to be redeemed in this world. And, and as Christians, we know that's true, and there's nothing new about that statement. Um, but I just wanted to offer a few things that I've been encouraged by in this past week that, that I hope you'll find encouragement to places where, just as we sang, uh, even when I can't see it, even when I don't feel it, God is at work. And so here, here's what I see a couple, I think I got three or four things that, that have really stood out to me as um, evidences of grace or God at work. First of all, I just think that it's, it's the grace of God that evil had been restrained the way it had in our city. I mean, Sunday night was anarchy. It was crazy. And thanks be to God that he restrained that evil, some form of uh, civil, civ, how do we, civility, thank you. I, I wrote that word and I knew I wouldn't be able to say it. Civility has been restored, and so we're grateful for the men and women who have stood in there as peaceful, prophetic presences uh, in our city. Um, two, I think taking this uh, racial injustice seriously, like I, I think there's a, an awakening to this racial injustice that's still alive in our city. And I, I've seen a lot of real repentance, uh, a lot of real um, Grief over what's gone on, not just with George Floyd, but just overall uh, the, some of the social dynamics. And, and, and even I've been super encouraged by people learning, right? That, that we say humbly, like, I don't know it, and maybe my interpretation of the world is wrong, and so I want to learn. So I've been really encouraged by that. And, and the third thing, I've just been super encouraged by the church, the capital C church, and especially our role in that as, as a local church has been discussing what our role is in change, in righteous, godly change in our country and in our world. And so I, I look at this, I'm encouraged by this, I personally want to be part of the solution, and I'm praying that God would use Sacred City Moline um, and Sacred City Davenport and every gospel preaching church to demonstrate, to give a, a glimpse into uh, heaven on earth, right? That, that's our prayer, just as the Lord taught us, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. 
And so that's what I'm praying for. Um, now, I, I want to shift gears, though. I wanted to acknowledge that, but I want to shift gears. We're going to take our eyes off of what's going on out there in the world um, and focus on what's going on in our own homes, specifically with marriage, right? And if you think about it, if, if we're going to be a church that impacts the world, if we're going to be a church that renews the city, renewal has to start in our homes, right? And so the, the key here is marriages. How, how do, what does God have to say about marriages? And listen, I know there's a lot of married folk here. I know there's a, some people who are about to get married. I know that there's some who are uh, widowed. There are some who maybe you're single. And listen, all of this, there, there's nobody that this does not apply to this morning. Okay, so, so no matter where you're at on that spectrum, there is something here for you. Because if we're a church that aims to make disciples, right, and so we're going to make disciples in our households, husbands and wives making disciples, that mutual discipleship that's happening. But even as single people, widow people, looking into the lives of other married folk, you have something to say, right? You, you have the ability to, to confront and to, um, to, to rebuke and to encourage us in the gospel as part of making disciples. So that's where we're going today. We're talking about marriage. I'm going to pray. We're going to jump into this. Um, and, and I'm just really excited what the Lord has for us. Father God, we thank you for your grace. Just the grace of this beautiful weather, the, the soft breeze that moves across the warm blacktop. God, just we, we want to feel the warmth of your love this morning. We want to be reminded of, of the small graces that you offer us. And God, one of the, the best places to look is in your word. And so this morning, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. I pray that as I speak, it would not be Sam speaking, but God would be speaking through me, that, that people would leave here thinking, I heard from God today. And God, I pray that you would take whatever message you have for us and you would embed it deep in our hearts, that we would be transformed, that we would live this gospel-centered life. So, Father, I pray that you would help me in my weakness and my fragility. I pray that you would uh, embolden me this morning, um, give me confidence, not in myself, but in the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, God. Would you work? Would you grow and sanctify your church this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, if you're with us, we've, we've been preaching through the book of Colossians. We've been going verse by verse, and uh, I wish I had time to catch you up on everything. I don't have time, but here's, here's what we've been saying so far, that, that when you... When you meet Jesus, when you have an encounter with Jesus, he changes every part of your life. Okay, that's what we saw last week in verse 17. He changes our hearts, and then the way that we live changes proceeding from the heart. Last week, we talked about how all of life is in response to this encounter with Jesus. He says, whatever you do in, in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so we've talked about this big picture view, right? We, we've been made alive, and so we do everything in Jesus' name. We live a gospel-centered, a gospel-empowered life. And so we go from this big picture aerial view of all things, and he's going to zero in, honing in on what's going to go on in our homes. This week we talk about marriage. Next week we talk about parenting. The week after that we're going to talk about work. And so he's really trying to work this out. How does the gospel actually change our life? And, and here he, see, he begins with marriage. The aim is for Jesus to transform us in, in some of the most profound ways imaginable. In fact, the, to, to, for Jesus to get in and change marriage is for him to change and transform the most foundational building block of society. Now, 
for how hard the, the, the complications, like for those of you who've been married out of the honeymoon stage, right, you know that marriage is, is hard. There, there's a lot of, of complications. There's a lot of nuance. There's difficulties that we face in marriage. And you'd think that because of the complexities of marriage, there ought to be a whole book written about it, right? Not, not, you know, not just like a little mention here or there, but a whole book. Well, Paul here actually, he only gives us two verses, right? He gives us verse 18 and verse 19, but, but here's why this is so important. These two verses show us the contours of a gospel marriage, right? This is not, what he's laying out is not um, covering in, in, in its entirety, of what a gospel-centered marriage is, but here is the main contour of a gospel-centered marriage, and this is what he says. I'm going to read it again. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, in our modern era, it's not surprising that many people take offense at this right? You hear the word wives submit, and you're like, who are you to say submit, right? Do you know the guy that I'm married to? How, how could I possibly submit, right? Well, ladies think like this is this, or even just as a culture, we say, okay, this is outdated. This is misogynistic. This is, this is a, a weapon that has been used to manipulate and, and, and oppress women for a long time. And men, you hear this, and you get defensive. What, like, love my wife. What do you mean? I do love my wife. Why are you telling me to, to love my wife and be gentle? Like, I'm doing that. And then our society as a whole, as we live in a postmodern, post-marriage society, like, they, they look at this equation, husband and wife, and say, why can't we, you know, why can't we alter or ha have some sort of alternate configuration of marriage? Right? Why does it have to be husband and wife? Why not husband and husband, wife and wife? Why not do, why not three, right? Why, why is it just two? And because it doesn't necessarily fit in with our, our modern mindset about marriage, we were quick to dismiss what the Bible has to say about marriage because we'd say, well, we've evolved, right? We know better. We have better understanding of life and how it works now. And that's true in some sense. But when we come to marriage, like, our, our tendency is to start to, to make new rules, to redefine the concept entirely. In fact, sometimes we even say there are no rules. Like, we can make up the rules to marriage as we go. But N.T. Wright says that if the home is to be a means of grace, uh, that, that means of radical uh, transformation, it must be a place of rules. The alternative to rule is not freedom, but the un unconstitutional and often unconscious tyranny of the most selfish member. Oof, that cuts, right? If there are no rules, if there's no boundaries, no guidelines to marriage, basically it becomes a free-for-all of who's the most selfish. Like, who, who can manipulate, who can, who can work the other person over in a way to get their own way? Now, if, if marriage is a man-made construct, we can do that. We can change the rules, but marriage isn't a man-made social construct that's open to revision. God both de designs and defines marriage. He, he shows us how life, how marriage works best, and the picture of it is, is a flourishing. But really, when we get underneath of it, 
marriage is less about function, right? We, we tend to have this sort of uh, utilitarian view of marriage. She does this, he does that. We're sort of counterparts in this, set, this way. This is how our house functions, you know, properly, right? So we've got this utilitarian, functional view of marriage, but marriage isn't about function. Marriage is, at its core, about story. And there are two stories that are being told through marriages. You're either, your marriage is either telling the story of, of a tragedy, of, of brokenness, of futility, of, of selfishness and anguish, or it's telling the story of redemption, of, of human flourishing, of peace and shalom and human goodness and beauty. And every marriage echoes the story that you're caught up in. Right, your marriage is reflecting the story that you're most bought into. Now, while Colossians only has two verses about marriage, the Bible has a lot to say about marriage. Right? Literally from the beginning to the end. There's a wedding at the beginning of Genesis, there's a wedding at the end of Revelation, and there's the whole spectrum in between. You see the romance of Song of Solomon, you see the the anguish uh, uh, and and heartbreak of Hosea. There's a lot to say about marriage. And it all starts with Genesis 1. See, to, in order to tell you the story of marriage or what your marriage, the story your marriage is telling, I have to tell you the stories that are being offered here. It starts in Genesis 1 where God has created everything. He says, he creates it. He says, this is good. This is good. I love this. This is good. And he comes to the apex of his creation. And he, he makes man in his likeness and his image. He points man to have dominion over the plants and the animals, all of the creation, to take this garden and to see to its flourishing and its development. But instead of saying it is good, he says, actually, this is not good. He says it's not good that man would be alone. And so what he says, he says, I'm going to make a helper who is fit for him. Now, Sometimes we see helper language, right? Helper, what it was that, like a wife as a helper, is she just here to be his little psyche? No, the, the type of helper, the, the, the word that's used in helper is the same word that's used of the help that the Holy Spirit, that God himself offers Christians. It's not a, a position of weakness. It's not a, a position of inferiority. It's a position of, of subdued strength. And so this is his helper. Adam receives Eve. God walks her down the aisle at the first ever wedding. And they're both affirmed as equals, both made in the likeness and image of God, both created with equal value, dignity, and worth. But then they're given a job to do. God, God says, go, fill the earth, take what I've started, and see to its flourishing, see to, to its expansion. And here, as they work in the garden, they have this really picturesque experience of what a marriage is meant to be. In fact, it's literally a perfect marriage. There's really nothing that goes wrong. They experience the harmony, the flourishing, the mutual respect and self-giving love of one another. Right? They're naked and unashamed. There's this unheld back givingness of themselves. They're complementary partners in the work that God's given them, but they are also being fulfilled in their intimacy that they share with one another. This is what the common experience of marriage was meant to be, but, but this only lasts until Genesis chapter 3, 
when Adam and Eve become, like, the best way to say it is they become candidates for the Dr. Phil show, okay? A lot of dysfunction starts, and it all gets kicked off as Adam abdicates his responsibility. God told Adam, he told Adam specifically that there, there's two trees in this garden, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, don't eat this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Any other tree. Any other tree is yours for the eating but this tree. That was Adam's responsibility. His objective was to to guard that. And it's not very hard. It's pretty simple. But Adam abdicates his responsibility. And Eve falls into the temptation of Satan. As he says, listen, you eat this and you'll become like God. Which is ironic because they were already created in the likeness and image of God. And so from that one bite ensues a complete undoing of the world, and it begins with their relationship, right? There's an undoing between our relationship with God, right? Man is separated. Adam and Eve are moved out of the garden. But now Adam and Eve experience this futility, this, this disruption of the shalom that they had in the garden. And it's from this moment we see things like racism, economic uh, issues, ecological uh, disruption. Animals are eating animals now. We see sickness. Coronavirus was already happening back at the fall. You see marital issues. This is one of the first things we see where Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the snake, right? There's all kinds of dysfunction that comes. And because of their sinful action, because they rebelled against God, God pronounces a curse. Right, this consequence of their sin. sin. Satan is, is, is cursed. He says that, that one day, look, you're going to have some time where you're wandering around the earth and you're going to be doing your work of tempting people, pulling them away from God. But one day, you will be crushed. And then he tells this woman, listen, Eve, things are going to get hard for you now. Childbirth. I don't know what childbirth was before in the Garden of Eden. Right? We don't know what that's like. I would imagine it tickled. I'm not sure. But, but now, Eve was like, uh, th- this is unbearable, right? The pains and the agony of childbirth. But then there's this other part of the curse. She, God tells her that your desire shall be for, or a, a more accurate translation would be to be against your husband, and he shall rule over you. So here we see this introduced power struggle that's happening where, where Adam was sort of the head. He was leading. He had the charge from God to fulfill. And he had Eve as his uh, powerfully subdued helper. Now there's this power struggle. There, there's this flip where either one, he takes his power and he abuses it, right? She, and she's resistant. She doesn't like that. Or two, she completely wants to buck his authority and say, I want to rule. So we see this relational divide happening. And then then God pronounces on Adam, your work will be frustrated, right? The ground is going to be hard. You're going to sweat. You've got to work hard to eat and to live. And all of your days of your life are going to be like this. And so there's this frustrated, obtrusive, never-ending relationship that we have with our work now. So we see both sides of this with, with what's going on in the curse with the woman and what's going on with the curse with the man are both profoundly, have profound relational implications. And, and these problems have not gone away, right? Still today, this disruption is being caused in many, many marriages, all marriages even, to some extent. 
where we see this functional dysfunction. And this is what it looks like in sort of a general way. And listen, I'm not going to be able to, to say what it looks like in your specific marriage or your specific marriage, your specific marriage, but here's generally how this works. And honestly, you're going to need other people in on your life seeing how your marriage works so they can speak into your life and, and to bring growth. Now, that's why we have missional communities. So we can help one another. But here's how this dysfunction, this functional dysfunction works. Men tend to pour their life into their work. Right? What was once fulfilling and enjoyable, now is marked by long hours instead of using it to be an expression of self. Now it's a place where men find their identity. It's where they get paid. It's where they feel validated instead of that relationship with their wife or with God. And in the name of providing and doing the tasks that they were called to do, they, they begin to abdicate the relational and spiritual responsibility that they have to their wives and to their children and to others in their lives. They start pushing it off and maybe pushing it onto their wives' shoulders, right? It's you who raises the kid. I bring the bread home. You take care of the kids. Or... We have a different response to that, and we get overwhelmed with this responsibility that's placed on the shoulders of men, and we start to enlist our wives as a beast of burden. Like, you've got to go out and help me make this happen. You've got to go out and help me bring in the bread. And so she, she finds herself doing what the man ought to do. Now, this doesn't mean that, that women shouldn't work. But there's this role reversal. There's this unfair treatment, and it's really self-motivated where he is leveraging his leadership, his authority, his power that God has given him within the confines of marriage to be self-seeking, that has been flipped for himself. Meanwhile, she's on the other side. She feels that, that she's been held back by his leadership and has this mentality of, you need to get out of my way, all right? I see what you're doing. It's cute, but it's not enough. Let me step out. I'm not just a strong helper. I can be the strong leader in this union. And she becomes dismissive and impatient with him. She's no longer a helper who's fit in the Lord, who's fit, as God says, what is fitting. But she's become a rival, a critic, a saboteur, that she's uh, enlisted herself in domestic blackmail. Because she thinks, I, I could do better. Now here we see this, what, was, what marriage was meant to be comes undone. The, the bliss that marriage was meant to be now becomes a nightmare because of sin and how it's gotten in and poisoned every relationship in our lives. Now this is the tragedy that I was speaking of. A tragedy of brokenness, futility, self-obsession, self-centeredness, uh, of bitterness and resentment. And, and no matter how good your marriage is, there are always traces of this to some degree. Because th- these are, these are the, 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 the inclinations that we have because of sin. Like no marriage is, even pleasant marriages, because of what's going on. That they don't reach their full potential, that they're held back and res- from, from really flourishing the way that God intended them to flourish. And so instead, there's this mistrust. There's this, people are keeping score, right? You did this, I do that. There's this bitterness. 
And there's no wonder why the divorce rate is so high. And not just, not just in, in marriages that aren't Christian, but also in Christian marriages. Right? Satan was sabotaging the union of marriage. But here's where Jesus steps in and breaks the cycle. He introduces and, and empowers a new era. The redemption story now unfolds right before our eyes. He takes the brokenness that we experience because of the fall, and he brings forth beauty and thriving and flourishing. And it only happens when we see Jesus stand in as the new Adam, the true and better husband who does not abdicate his responsibility. Now, he's saying, wait, just Jesus as a, as a husband? Right? I thought Jesus was single. Well, yeah, he, he was single, but the wedding that happens in Revelation is the wedding between Jesus and his bride, the church. See, Jesus wasn't married to one person. He's married to the body of believers. That's, that's what marriage is for. That's what marriage points to. And Jesus stands in as a new Adam, the true and better husband, where he, did, he faced the same temptation that Adam faced, but he didn't, t- he didn't cave, right? After Jesus baptized, he was led out into the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, fasting. And Satan comes and three times very powerfully tempts him, say, hey, just come on, why don't you just fold? Adam would have, but Jesus doesn't. Not only that, not only does Jesus resist the temptation, but he kills the serpent. He defanged the snake so the poison of sin could no longer reign in humanity. And, and even goes one beyond that where he sucks the poison out, right? You bit by a, a rattlesnake, what you got to do, you got to suck that poison out so it's not in there infecting your body. Well, Jesus does that. He sucks the poison of sin out by taking the curse of sin that every husband and wife had experienced upon himself and he was hung and nailed to a tree. He used his power, his authority, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. See, it's Jesus. He deals gently with the church. He doesn't look at the bride and say, come on, get your stuff together. Come on, we, we got we to ship this shape up. I almost said a bad word. That's not how he treats the church. He, he's not looking at his watch like, don't you have this figured out by now? Right? Can't, can't you just listen to me? Can't you just? That's not, he deals gently, almost as if he caresses the church in the most appropriate way. Just a, a way that, that demonstrates, look, you can trust me. I'm for you. I'm not against you. And all of this is motivated by his steadfast, undying love for his bride. No matter what condition she takes, no matter how ugly her sin is, he still loves her. He still loves you. He still loves us. But here's the thing, okay? Like, Jesus sets it up, the perfect husband, right? Where's that perfect bride? And you look at the church, it's like, the church is dysfunctional. Like, we're a mess, a hot mess. We see what Jesus does for us, and day in and day out in the real functional parts of our lives, we don't know how to reciprocate his love. We don't know how to respond to him. We see this self-giving, sacrificial love, yet we still insist on doing things our own way. Like, no, God, I got this handled. Thank you, though. I I don't need you leading me. I don't need to to submit. I don't need to come under you. I'm going to do my own thing. 
Instead of humbly submitting to him and this self-giving love, we are arrogantly veering away. But here's the thing. Jesus knew that this would happen. This isn't a surprise to him. He knew that we would be dragging our feet. He knew how clumsy the church would be as we stumble down the aisle. He says, I don't care. I still love her. I'm going to give myself for her. And so he knew it would be the case. He did it anyway because that's the kind of one-way, undying, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love Jesus has for the church. Now, what's crazy, though, is as Jesus fulfilled the role of husband, we also see how he fulfills the role of the bride, right? What's expected of the bride, the church, Jesus actually demonstrates in his relationship toward the Father. He submits himself to the will of God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows, like, what's going to happen next, right? The crucifixion, it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful, He doesn't say, you know what, God, I'm just going to sit this one out. I'll let you figure out an alternative plan. Jesus says, no, no. I'm going to submit myself. My will, but your will be done. I trust you, Father. So he did what is fitting. Okay, this word fitting is really important. It has the sense of what's appropriate, okay, what, what is right, but it also has this, carries this notion of what's harmonious, right? What we see when when Eve was made as a helper fit for Adam, it has this picture of harmony in this union. And so Jesus does what is fitting, even though he knows it will hurt him. And here's the thing. Because of his self-giving love as the husband, as his um, submission to the father as the bride, the ultimate joy of all parties, God, like all the members of the Trinity, and the church are wrapped up in Jesus's self-giving love. And here he reintroduces shalom. In fact, it's shalom 2.0. He brings about this flourishing, this human flourishing that is uh, uh, unbelievable. In fact, I try to describe it. You wouldn't even, you, you don't even have the bandwidth to, to let it register. It's so impressive. And if you've experienced the self-giving love of Jesus, then you and your marriage are caught up into this grand story of redemption. See, this is the story that your marriage is meant to be showcasing. In verse 18 and 19, when Paul says, says husbands do this, wives do this, he's telling us this is, what, this is how the gospel is demonstrated in your own marriage. That we are to imitate Jesus. Wives, as he says in verse 18, submit to your husbands as is fitting the Lord. This is an invitation to submit to your husbands just as Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. Now, the, the fall is still lingering where that's a hard thing to do. Right? You're talking about entrusting yourself to a sinful, wavering, inconsistent man. I know it's hard. I'm that kind of man. I can barely put up with myself sometimes. But this is the invitation, how you reflect the gospel. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That's not a nasty word, submission. We treat it at that. But it's this humble entrusting of yourself, that, that, that strong, subdued presence that Eve had in the garden. 
That's powerful. You submit not as a prisoner, but as one who is willing, who is glad because you see the gladness of Jesus in his submission. Now, Peter, when he's writing about marriage, he says, women, if you do this, you are the daughters of Sarah, right? Sarah and Abraham, they had a pretty dysfunctional marriage, but Sarah entrusted herself to Abraham, even when he was a bonehead. He said, if you do this, if you give yourself to your husbands and trust yourself in the hands of your husbands who's entrusted, like, and I'm not just saying like a bonehead husband, but a, a godly, God-fearing, Jesus-loving husband, right? This is Christian marriage. He says, if you can do this without fear, you are the daughters of Sarah. And we see, he says, submit yourselves, which is fitting in the Lord. Now, that going back, like, in the name of the Lord, we talked about last week, there's a sense of, of what reflects Jesus, but also empowered by Jesus, right? This can only happen. This isn't in your nature. This is not in anyone's nature. The only way this can happen is if the power of the gospel is working through us. And husbands, you have two commands. She's got one. Hers is hard enough as, as one. You got two says, love your wives, right? Ephesians 5 talks about love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church in a self-giving, sacrificial way, right? It wasn't about him. It was about his bride. And then there's this, this reality of you, we have authority as husbands. We're charged with the responsibility to lead and to seek to the flourishing of our households. But we use this power not to serve ourselves, but to serve our wife. Not to demand submission, but to give ourselves freely to her. Part is don't be harsh with her. Or, or in other words, be gentle. Right? We talked about this last week. The, the characteristics of Jesus. He's gentle and lowly at heart. So as husbands, where we have this tough neck, you know, calloused hand tendency... We're called to act in a, a different way, tenderness toward our wives, knowing her frame. And the only way that we can do this is by drawing from Jesus. See, the, this is the contours of a gospel marriage. Now, let me ask you, what story does your marriage echo? What story is your marriage pointing to? Now, as Christians, our desire ought to be that our marriages point to and are empowered by Jesus. And the only way that we can live into that is by faith and repentance. Like, first we have to see Jesus for the way that he loves the church. Jesus, the way that he submits to the Father. But then there's this second phase of, of repentance, right? Of turning from our wrongdoing, turning away from the curse, turning away from the fallen tendencies that we have in marriage. So husbands, let me ask you first. Here's your responsibility, and you need to lead this out. What changes do you need to make to be more self-giving? What changes do you need to make to be more loving and gentle? And, and not just in a way where you think, oh, yeah, I'm being loving, but, but in a way where she receives it as gentleness and love. What needs to change? What bitterness, what abdication, what neglect in your life needs repentance? See, the only way that a marriage is going to be transformed is if you initiate, if you lead this out. And wives, how can you live into your role 
in which is fitting in the Lord. Of being a strong and submissive helper that is fitting, that is harmonious with the work of your husbands. And advancing God's mission through marriage. See, Adam is useless without Eve. Right? God says it himself. It's not good. And the invitation here is to be rejoined. So wives, what, what resentment, resentments, what frustrations, what um, power grabs or control need repentance in your life? And look at it. Examine it. Confess it. And then here's what you do with it. You take it and you put it before the feet of Jesus.